0: I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. ...is the music of Duran Duran when the singer of that band was a guy named Andy Wickett. Andy is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Andy Wickett. Born in Birmingham, Andy Wickett got his start playing in TVI, a band who took their name from the title of an Iggy Pop song. TVI were more glam than punk, and their music was filled with gloss and swagger. Now, regionally, they were huge. So huge, in fact, they influenced a number of fledgling Birmingham bands. One of those bands, you guessed it, Duran Duran. But we'll get to that in a minute. Now, Wicket worked the night shift at the Cadbury Chocolate Factory. No, that's not a euphemism. And the conveyor belt monotony he experienced on that job was the catalyst for a lot of his inventive musical ideas and lyrics. Now, when it came to ideas, Wicket was full of them, and you'll see this as we march through his musical CV. Now, I told you that the members of Duran Duran were huge fans of TVI, and I wasn't joking. For example, Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran was a fixture at TVI rehearsals, and he always had his tape recorder in tow. With that detail in mind, it's hard not to imagine the sheer glee that Nick Rhodes must have experienced when Andy Wickett left TVI to join Duran Duran. You're probably wondering, well, what happened to Duran Duran's singer at the time? Well, that was Stephen Duffy, and Stephen Duffy did the only thing that someone would do in his position. That's right, he became the singer of TVI. Pretty incestuous scene there in Birmingham in the late 70s, apparently. But back to our story. The wicket-fronted Duran Duran now had an experienced and confident frontman who had the looks and the voice to take the band to the next level. But before you go to the next level, you have to go into the studio. And so the newly invigorated band did just that. Duran Duran entered Bob Lamb's studio, which was the location where UB-40 were recording, and they knocked out a quick demo. Now, there were four songs on that demo. Girls on Film, Reincarnation... Working the Steel, which, by the way, sounds like a good title for a Bob Seeger song, and another track called See Me, Repeat Me. A curious fun fact, See Me, Repeat Me would be transformed after Wicket left the band into a song called Rio. How did that fare? Oh, Google it. Okay, I got a little ahead of myself, and I revealed that uh, Andy Wicket left Duran Duran, but you already knew that. Because, you know, the lead singer of Duran Duran's name is not Simon LeWickett, Or, for that matter, Andy LeBon. All right, let me tell you what happened. Now, at this point, everything was actually going well. Nick Rhodes' father took Nick and bassist John Taylor around to all the London-based record companies, and they played them Duran Duran's demo. The Takers, EMI, and AM. They both wanted the band. The Catch? They wanted more songs like Girls on Film and less songs like Reincarnation. You see where this is going. Long story short, Andy Wickett left Duran Duran, but Duran Duran still wanted his songs. Well, they wanted one in particular, the one that A&M and EMI wanted, Girls on Film. They gave him 600 pounds for it, which in U.S. dollars is roughly about 800 bucks. Wicket took it, he signed a waiver, and that was that. Well, to be more accurate, I should say that was kind of that. You see, Duran Duran still needed Andy Wicket's help. They had a new singer, his name was Simon Lebon, and he needed singing lessons. Who better to teach the young Lebon how to sing a song like, oh, I don't know, Girls on Film, than the guy who wrote it? So, for about ten pounds... Andy Wickett taught Simon Le Bon how to sing. How much is 10 pounds in U.S. dollars? Well, it's about 13 bucks. This is the moment where you get to decide for yourself who got the better deal. And I'm not just talking about the singing lessons. After Duran Duran, Wickett did just fine. He went on to play with a Birmingham reggae band called The Experts, and they were actually one of the first bands to ever graft electronica and dub. They were wildly popular and they opened high profile gigs for the likes of The Clash, U2, Orange Juice, and Culture Club. In 1988, Wicket formed World Service, who were the first British band to tour North Africa and the Sahara regions. And as many stories come full circle, so does Wicket's. In 1996, World Service jumped on a high profile tour as the opener. ...for none other than Duran Duran. Wicket went on to co-write with Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan and Stereo Nation. He also produced a host of videos, and he even fronted a band called Mouse 61. In March of 2017, Andy Wicket and World Service put out the very fine album Creatures of Love. Now, before I play you the conversation with Andy Wicket, I gotta tell you, I was really excited to interview him... And I was familiar with his story, and I thought it would be really interesting to kind of hear about those early days with Duran Duran. Uh, but maybe you've noticed this podcast doesn't really focus that much on the past. I'm, I'm more interested in the current creative moment that artists are experiencing and going through. But Andy Wickett's past is almost too delicious to pass up. I mean, imagine you were the singer of Duran Duran, and then you weren't, and then they were huge, right? They were they were like Beatles huge in the 80s. I think they were sort of our new wave Beatles. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk a bit about the past with Andy Wicket, even though, look, I don't have a moratorium on talking about the past. I'm fine with it. But there's just general biographical things that everybody knows, and I try to get that stuff out of the way in uh, these opening monologues. And then it kind of dispenses with all the heaviness of the past, and we can focus on the present and the future. But again— With Andy Wickett, I kind of wanted to go back and talk about those times. It was a weird interview. It was really strange. It was kind of stilted and it got a little uncomfortable and I could feel it getting away from me. Andy Wickett is a really nice guy and he's immensely talented and very cool, but something wasn't going right in the interview. And then I kind of figured it out. And once I figured it out, I think we both relaxed, and it was kind of a relief, I think, for him and for me. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. i got to tell you, if you get a chance, pick up his work. The guy is amazing. His voice is so powerful. You can see why Simon Le Bon wanted singing lessons from Andy Wickett. His musical ideas are really inventive, and the way he can inhabit a song is, frankly, in my mind, completely original and totally commanding. All right, so... Here's my chat with Andy Wickett. It's a little weird at first, and uh, I, think you, I think you're going to see why uh, it becomes less weird once the tension is finally broken. All right. Here's my chat with Andy Wickett. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Well, first of all, I wanted to say uh, it's it's really nice that these demos uh, finally get to see the light of day. Um, yeah, what, yeah. You know, wh- what's that like for you to kind of finally get these out?
1: That's great. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pleased they're out there.
0: Um, what what was the delay? Like, what what took so long in, in getting these out? Well, I, I
1: was I released them I I I sort of put them out myself before they were on for sale on my website. And um, these guys from Cleopatra said they wanted to put it out on their label.
0: The identity of that band, though, seemed to me to be Mm. something that was kind of in flux, like the Stephen Duffy stuff, the stuff that you did, and then the the Simon Bond, right? Those are three different bands, aren't they?
1: Uh, Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I think they were, like, Merging the music around the bands around them into this thing.
0: What's kind of cool about this is, I think that a lot of people um, didn't really know about this chapter uh, of the band, so it's Mm. right. So it's kind of cool that you can sort of like fill in the blanks for people who didn't actually know,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's, but I mean, there are some people know, but it's not widely known. But hopefully they will get more widely known.
0: I think. Um, I w- I wondered. I had to ask you this, Andy. Like, I I wonder if you're sick of talking about this. Is it? Is it a topic that you've? Been- <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I am
1: a bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I
2: love it. No, no it's.
1: You know, it's an achievement, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, not a lot of people can uh, can claim to to have what done what you've done, so it's pretty cool. No. no.
1: Yeah. It's it's quite uh, to quite a uh, quite the phrase, I think.
0: Did you know uh, Steve Duffy? But,
1: yeah. Yeah. We swapped bands because I was in TVI. Right. And uh, and he was in Duran Duran, and we I left. TVI and joined Duran Duran. He left Duran Duran, joined TVI, and uh, yeah. So there's that cross pollination going on.
0: <laughs> isn't that like, isn't yeah. that kind of like dating each other's ex girlfriends? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I got their painted disco socks on on my door because they rehearsed downstairs. The Hawks, Stephen Duffy, and um, Cosworth, and that. And they became a corpse. So, so they were downstairs in the veranda and and uh, Jones were in my room rehearsing. And they painted disco socks because they were using disco beats. <laughs> and they, thought it, they thought it was very uncool. <laughs> 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 they were like Johnny Saunders, Nigel dolls sort of guys, you know, Rolling Stones and all that.
0: Well, you know, you you seem to have better taste in music than than those guys back then. Like you seemed like you were really like into the into the darker stuff, into the into the more punk rock stuff.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I was a bit more edgier than them. So I thought, you know, felt to be trapped in that world.
0: Yeah. Listen, you you were a young guy, so it's like you know it. It's it's hard to know like what the future is going to bring when you're that young, and it's hard to have Mm -hmm. right. Like yeah, yeah.
1: You don't know. You never know what's going to happen. Really. So I mean, I did have an idea of where they were going because of the response from the uh, the demo when they took it to London. There were um, Nick's dad took them to London and uh, they took that demo down there and they said, uh, if you got any more songs like Girls on Film, we'll sign you. So I knew that then that they were going somewhere, or I was. <laughs> but then I like don't know what happened, but I just got scared of all that stuff and thought I'd be trapped in a world I never made. Sort of thing <laughs> because it's like
0: yeah i mean like in many ways that was actually to your credit that was kind of a, a a pretty good vision on your part to have that insight
1: yeah yeah i knew i could see where it was going but uh a lot of it was hype <laughs> like you know it's just getting you become part of a machine and i didn't want to do that really at the time i I'd probably kill myself with all the money and drugs and <laughs>
0: everything else. So I'm a survivor as well. <laughs> yeah. Were you were you ever close with any of those guys? I mean, you you didn't really grow up together, did you?
1: No, not really. No, they we not close. I wouldn't say we were close. No.
0: What about what about Birmingham? Like the, I was, I always think about Manchester, mm-hmm. like the sounds of Manchester. That sort of. You can, oh yeah, right. You listen to Joy Division. You listen to that kind yeah, of. Youth. You yeah. can, you can almost like feel Manchester. But when you, when yeah. you, like, what was the Birmingham had like the English beat? Even like, what were the sounds of yeah. Birmingham?
1: Well, it was coming out of reggae, you know, black music, and you know, there was a lot of that, you know, going on in the area. And uh, yeah, a lot of it was inspired by that and the punk stuff. And also, you know, the disco as well. It came out, of, came out of that, really. But I mean, then on the other side, you've got the rock and the heavy metal and stuff.
2: Right.
1: But I don't think there's a, a, a definitive, you know, there's been a sort of definitive uh, Birmingham music. You know, it's just it's really diverse. You know, there's like loads, of, Birmingham's like a villages stuck together, you know, they all claim different, they're all into different worlds, and that, you know, sometimes that crosses over, but as for, uh, you know, a Manchester type explosion, there's never been anything like that, really.
0: Wasn't UB40 from Birmingham?
1: Yeah, yeah, I went to school with them. <laughs> school, they were the year above now. <laughs> It was an
0: art school, so you know, with music and art. I suppose they uh, go hand in hand, really. So, when people listen to these demos now, um, it kind of adds a new dimension to their understanding of, of the band. Those who didn't know about it, um, listening, yeah, to, yeah. right? Like listening to the demos now, like, like, how do they sound to you? Do they, do they, what perspective do you have?
1: Well, they sound a bit under earth I mean, it was just like. Yeah, you know, I just think you know, if I could do that again, uh, I'd tidy it up. <laughs> but now they're good; they're they're raw. It's hard, it's hard for me to say because I'm too uh, not objective, subjective. Who um,
0: <laughs> who who was I'm the sure. like who was clearly the best musician in that band at that time? Like, who could you, t- you know what I mean? Who could you tell had the chops?
1: Uh, Well, I think uh, Nigel, the bass. He, he was, you know, very keen, and he was, like, kicking up all this stuff and shaking uh, that. And, uh, yeah, it was good. And then uh, and Roger, getting Roger in the band, he was real tight. You could play that groovy really tight disco beat, which is what was needed. As soon as he came in, the sound came together. Give you that you know, driving disco beat, basically. Nick 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 used to just play with one finger and get weird sounds and a lot of it he started putting it on tape. He was like into Eno and that, so give you that other edge at the time, yeah. You're
0: you're such a different singer than Simon LeBon. What's your take on that guy's vocals? What do you think of him as a singer?
1: Uh He's alright, you know, does the job I suppose. Yeah. I did I gave him lessons. <laughs> get they used to pay me, but their management to give him lessons. Cause they they wanted him to sing like me basically. Yeah.
0: So when uh you left T B I, what kind of band was yeah. TBI? like what what was TBI like?
1: It was like Iggy Pop, uh the New York Dolls, the Stones. Sex Pistols, um, all that sort of, Johnny Thunders, uh, all that. And then Ultravox, the early version of Ultravox, I want to put a bit of that in. Bowie, uh, all that sort of. You, you, can, you can get the album, an album of uh, GVI stuff, demos and stuff online.
0: I would imagine that you yeah. you probably didn't have much patience for the the synth pop that was soon to come. I could see that going against what you liked.
1: No, I like some of it. I liked Gary Newman and that, early Gary Newman before he became totally synth. I like when he got guitars and the tube army. I like I because I, I had a stylophone and. uh again <laughs> I had some uh, some of the members like mutiny to mutiny about me playing it but yeah because we did Stevie's radio station with TBI and uh, that was one of the uh, songs that Duran Duran liked to Nick came around and taped it he looked that song and then uh, I did the song with the band when I joined them so and that later became Rio so I did like you know I do like Keyboards and stuff. You should also also check out my new album, Creatures of Love, which is out on Cleopatra Records. Oh, I've got got to get that in. Sorry.
0: No, no, it's good. (laughs) How would you describe your new album? Uh,
1: well, shit. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can. It's there's so many different things in it. It's Ah uh, creatures of love it's so it's got some it's got some uh it's got loads of things in it you need to have good songs uh and a variety of sounds scapes mixed with good songs but i don't know Sorry. No, no, it's not, it's, good. Not it's... My job. it's not my job. No, I know. I just it.
0: That's my job. I I'm,
1: formulate I... my thread. What's my thread? What's my thread?
0: <laughs>
1: I not promote myself. What's my
0: angle? Well, you've you've done your job. You've recorded the album. My job is to tell you what yeah. it sounds like.
1: Okay, will you tell you? I will listen to me and then tell me and play some of the tracks, please.
0: I will. I have a very good friend uh, named Matthew Edwards who's from Birmingham. And oh, yeah, I
1: know yes. you, you know that? In San Francisco.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah I, yeah, I came over and I was walking down the street and uh, I met him at the crossroads. He was just walking across the same time. Chance.
0: Wait, so chance. you hadn't seen that guy in years and you're in no. San Francisco and exactly. all of a sudden he's there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What? What was that
1: like? One of the, it was interesting. you know, shocking at first, but yeah, we had a beer and that, you know. Yeah, it was good.
0: Did you? Um, a small I, world. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, world. he. Did you grow up with that guy? Mm, not grow up. We I used to hang out with
1: him for a while in, you know, up in town. Yeah, and these we. TV played with their band and spoiled each other and stuff. Yeah, so
0: Yeah. Well, you know, he is back in Birmingham, so you might be walking down the street, you might run into him again.
1: Yeah, I saw, I saw him not long ago. He's playing a did a gig in town, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know I, mean? but, I,
0: I think one yeah. of you one of you guys is following the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's tracking me tracking each other hey I'm, I'm glad that these demos have come to light in a bigger way I think people should hear them I think it's an important yeah. chapter yeah yeah nice one man thanks you know and I, I know you're sick of talking about Duran Duran so I appreciate you talking about it with me it's alright it's
1: alright it's alright
0: it's
1: alright right. best of luck to you sir cool alright Alex nice to
0: Taken from the album of the very same name, that is Creatures of Love, by Andy Wicket and World Service, out on Cleopatra Records. If you want more information about Andy Wickett, go to his website, andywicket.com. It's two T's at the end of his name, Wicket, W-I-C-K-E-T-T. All right, andywicket.com, check it out. And uh, you'll learn a lot about that guy. He has an enormous body of work that is far more vast than just a couple of songs that – he recorded with Duran Duran in the late 70s. I was going to play one at the end of the interview, and I thought, well, why? Let's do something new. Let's do something new that Andy Wickett has done because I think the world needs to hear this guy. He is incredible, a very powerful voice, very emotive, big hooks, big songs. You'll see what I mean. Go down the Andy Wickett rabbit hole, and, uh, and, and I think you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. All right, on to our second guest. Check this out. So what did you want to talk about?
2: Jason, sit down. I'm leaving you.
0: Looks more like I'm leaving you. I'm kicking you out. You're kicking me out of our apartment?
2: My apartment.
0: Because of the trip? Come on. (laughs) Carol, could you just please be supportive for once?
3: I have done nothing but support you. you. You rework your whole fucking life around these stupid hyper-masculine ideals that you get in your big dumb head, and I am always
2: there to support you when you start, and then you quit. What? When? Oh, okay, let me see. Um, two years ago, you were a runner. We had to wake up at the butt fuck of dawn to run for two hours, and that lasted until you blew your knee trying to run to
3: Mexico. Hey. I got pretty far.
2: Then it was MMA.
3: MMA is very hard, Carol. Mm -hmm.
2: There are still bloodstains on the floor. Woodworking, poker, boating, hunting, shooting ranges, fucking classic car restoration. Hey, where is that 65 Impala we were going to drive to Big Sur?
0: It is in our garage. Does it have wheels? Carol, this is different, okay? Does It it have wheels? It looks cooler without wheels. Well, he has a point. That is a scene from the new indie comedy... The Outdoorsman. Let me tell you a little bit about The Outdoorsman. Set in Los Angeles, The Outdoorsman is an indie comedy about missed opportunities and love, but it's also a movie about the realization that failure is one of the best ways to conquer our fears. The movie stars Brent Morin, who was on Undateable, uh, Saturday Night Live's Shears and It also has cameos from Brooks Whalen, who was also on SNL, and Laura Nightlinger. Uh, The movie's great. It's really charming. It's really funny. It's very moving as well. And I think, in my opinion, the movie is about the idea that we kind of have to push ourselves to face our demons. Because if we do, it's the fastest way to chase them off. The Outdoorsman was an official selection at the Newport Beach Film Festival and for good reason. It is truly one of the most charming films of the year. Um, It's incredibly sweet. It has a really big heart. And, you know, it handles it handles some pretty heavy material uh, in a really deft way. The director of the film is David Haskell. He's a first-time director, and he did a great job of telling a story about a guy who's going to spend a year in the wilderness, but he's never been camping before. And Mr. Haskell is my second guest today on the program. What's really cool about this conversation is that David's career is just beginning, and it's really fun to talk to somebody who's embarking on a career. So he talked a bit about the process to get this movie made for a guy who'd never made a movie before. He also talked about how he got Sashir Zameda and Brent Morin for the roles, and he kind of revealed a little bit about what he's working on in the future. This guy is one to watch. Really great guy, really great film. Enjoy this conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
3: See the um, school for Cinematic Arts, and uh, I made a friend there. They, there's there's a fledgling um, comedy group there, um, which has gone through a bunch of different name changes. I don't know what they're called right now, but um, one of the guys who was running it really liked my stuff, and I read some of his scripts, and I really liked a couple of his scripts. And it's it so, I ended up optioning this one from him, um, that I enjoyed, uh, and uh, it, it seemed. Uh, production-wise, easy to make, and it, it had these really dynamic characters that I could really in- inhabit. I felt like it could be uh, easy to cast. I like—I was Casting was just jumping out at me as I was doing it.
0: Well, when you say it was easy to cast, you, were you thinking of Sashir and Brent the whole time?
3: Brent, no. Brent came to us pretty late in the game. Um... But Sashir popped up really quickly. As soon as I showed it to uh, my producing partner, he had just worked with Sashir on a movie called Slight. Um, And he, you know, threw her out. I went back and I looked at a bunch of her SNL stuff. And then I also remembered that um, SF refound her old web series, which I was just in love with when it first came out. So um, immediately she seemed like she had the emotional fortitude and, um, humanity to play Mona.
0: She has an incredible strength and vulnerability and I, and I think that, that makes her so appealing as an actress.
3: Right? I, I do too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean
3: that's exactly what I loved about her. Yeah, I, she was really lovely to work with. She was really um, She's a really smart performer. Um, I think she um, is just filled with life. And strength and um it, both in the role that she that we had her in and also just off off camera as well, she was a really fun person to be around
0: was it hard to get her i mean that I wonder like sometimes um I've been involved with some scripts and trying to get people and, I, and I've always heard from studios you know we need a name uh to get this thing made, and she is a name and and i but I wonder coming from. Being kind of a rookie director, right, and she's somebody who has, um, you know, some credits obviously to her name. Was it hard to get her on board or to convince her to come on board?
3: I wish I could say yes, but no. I we sent her the script. She liked the script. We met for lunch. I was I was in Tribeca um, with a, a a short film that I produced and. Um, we met for lunch and we got along and I remember she, we, we ended up going like to like some weird knickknack store afterwards and just for really like hanging out. And then I didn't get, she didn't commit in, in the room and then I just emailed her like as she was getting on the subway and I was like, please say yes, please say yes. And she emailed back pretty quickly. That she was, that she could do it. So it was great.
0: And what about Brentley? Like how for him, obviously he was on Undateable. I remember him from that. I've seen his up. Um, was he, was he who you, not who you had in mind to begin with, and how did he come on board?
3: Bren, um, Brent was a long story to get on board. He was not necessarily a person that I thought of right away, but when he was presented to us, he was really perfect. Um, it took us a while to find him. Um, we, you know, it's, it, it was a little trickier, and he ended up signing on, Less than a week before we started shooting, so he was a real blessing. Um, but he was—I I don't know—he was just a funny. He's just had has all of that that um, again vulnerability and 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 humanity that that um, Sushir had. So he was uh, It was it was a long path to find him though. It's, it takes a while to really get. You don't realize this, but it takes a really long time to get a know. And so you'll send out an offer to somebody, and then like three weeks later, it'll come back. No, they can't do it. And you just keep keep plugging away. But then eventually, we found an agent um, who read the script, really believed in it, and um, he was like, "I, can, you know, I could probably get this guy." And we we watched his stuff and just loved him for it. So
0: a lot of people who who David. listen to the show are. Are sort of you know upcoming musicians, actors, directors, artists, um, and this project seems like it came together in a. In a now I don't know if this is true, so so help me out. But it sounds like it all came together really easy or fast. Is that not the case? And were there years of struggle for you, or how, what's what's the story with you and your and your process of getting this thing made?
3: The actual like. Group development took a very long time. I think it took about a year and a half, two years even. Um, But then, yeah, once I met with Sashir, I got to a place that I liked it, and then once I met with Sashir, it was a very quick process. I met with her in April, and we shot in August. And we made this um, pretty... It's an interesting gambit to make. I would... If anybody was listening that was looking to make a feature, I would consider um, this as a possible strategy. If you can get Uh, if you have some of your money, um, and you you get, you get, you feel like you finally get like one little foot in the ground, um, set a, set a date and everyone takes it more seriously. The second you, the second you say we are going forward, we have a date, we're moving forward and like come hell or high water, it's going to happen everyone you work with every agent every manager that you work with starts pitching it as something that's happening rather than something that you know may or may not happen and people get a little bit more excited about it obviously it's a gambit because if you can't find the perfect person you either end up with an imperfect person or you the whole thing falls apart and you waste a ton of money just paying people to to even start working um but it worked out really well for us um i think we really got um, great people
0: for our for our project, and it sounds like script development. Though it took a long time, that sounds like the real foundational element here.
3: That was the thing that I really I needed before I was going to throw myself into it. And so it was a it was a lot of back and forth with the writer. Um, it was that was a pretty tenuous, drawn out process. But it you know I was really pleased with the with what we went forward with.
0: For you, so then, okay, so everything's in place, you've got really great people, and now you're behind the camera. Was there a moment where you went, oh my God, now I actually have to direct this, and like, i got to figure out how to do this? What, were, were you nervous to actually take charge, or were you sort of like ready to hit the ground?
3: So I made a whole book for myself, um, and I broke, I got real left brain about it for some reason. Um, I, I don't know why. I felt like even if I didn't use it, I wanted to create some sort of just, just a book and have, even with numbers in it, how intense do I want the scene to be? I, uh, there's, like, um, how funny do I want this scene to be? How light do I want the scene to be? And I, wait, there was another one. There's one that was really similar to Intensity, maybe Proximity like just all sorts of notes about the qualities of the scene. And then I brought the book with me to set and I don't think I opened it once for the entire <laughs> shooting, but I think just making the book had like really helped me. Cause at some point you're just like, the camera has to go here because it's a small apartment. And if you want a wide shot, it's going to be here with this lens. So, um, so yeah, that, uh, but that was a really important process for me. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, Stepping on the, Every time I've ever directed anything, just that first day of stepping onto set is just the best feeling in the world because um, you get to make people do things that make you laugh and you get to be around these funny, cool people. And it's all about entertaining yourself. And I think that's what um, that's what makes it such a fun job is I, I just get professional people to come entertain me.
0: Have you been able to watch the movie? I know some people, they don't listen to their albums after they record them. They don't watch their films after they make them. Um, where do you fall in that category?
3: I watched it in Austin. I I really, I mean, I was still laughing through the editing, through the sound mixing. I would say right around color, like the last two times I watched it, I was like a little hand ringy. But like just the fact that I got that far was really exciting to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then once it premiered at Austin, we, it was really a fun thing. It was you know just be in a room people were laughing their their asses off. I was sitting next to Monique, who plays the friend um, and she was just dying the whole time. It was really it just made the fun made the experience really fun. I find it really hard to watch by myself right now, um, but i I am thrilled to screen it uh, with people in the in the theater.
0: You know, in in the old days, before Netflix and before, you know, there used to be these sort of art house um, theaters that I used to always go to here in the Bay Area, which is where I'm from. We had a ton of them, and now Mm -hmm. a lot of them are gone, um, which is heartbreaking. So, in terms of getting this movie, because I hadn't heard of it until until your publicist had written to me, and I was like, this is the kind of movie I want to watch. And I would have watched, you know, in the old days, I would have gone to see in real life out in the world how is this movie mm-hmm. reaching people how what is that process like and is that as challenging as actually making it
3: uh it's probably a lot less challenging but it's it's really it's really difficult when you spend you know it's like i spent years trying to get good at at um directing things and writing things and then it's like oh and then i have to um you know, now I have to handle the distribution. I don't know. I don't know the first thing about distribution, but we did get distribution. Uh, so hopefully it'll be on a, uh, VOD service in the next, um, eight months or so it'll be, it'll be available. I'll, I'll be in a better position to answer that question in a while, but I will say there's something very kind of sadly disheartening about like, you feel like you did everything and you you worked hard and you got something you liked, and then um, and then you're like, uh, "How do I get it out there? I don't know how to. I don't know how to do this." And you have to figure it out for yourself, and it kind of feels like there's no right answers.
0: Why does that fall on your shoulders?
3: Because I mean, I think with independent film, everything ends up falling on your shoulders. I'm blessed to have. I never use the word blessed. I'm very lucky to have <laughs> uh, like a, a superhero producing partner and some friends that really know. Um, what they're doing and are really talented and have helped me a lot. But at the end of the day, it's like you have to uh, click send and um, or, I mean, well, Chris, is, me and my producing partner have to click send uh, and get things out there and make choices. Uh, and it's, it becomes less of a team sport and more of a, a solo thing.
0: Now, I don't want to give too much away about the movie, but I, what I will say is that what I related to Uh, with it is the fact that we I'm going to get a little deep with you here but the idea that we tend to fight parts of ourselves and sometimes the fight kind of tricks us into thinking that that's our purpose and I I like the fact that in many ways one of the resolutions of the film is that you just have to kind of let stuff go Yes that is exactly what
3: attracted me to the the very first script that's. I'm glad you said that. That seems like a thousand percent. It's kind of an anti Hollywood thing, and in a lot of the pitch materials that I had, I talked about how like you, there's a point in your life where you can't be anything. We like we're we're groomed to believe that we can be anything we want to be, and it's not. Um, it's not true. I can't be president. There's there's no uh, there's no version of the of world events that will end with me being president. There's there are people that will never be models there, you know, and I think that, um, yeah, fighting for it can really, fighting for something you want can really um, bring a lot of truth to your to your life and really help you understand what you are. But at the end of the day, sometimes there's the moment where you have to accept who you really are.
0: And also that means accepting and understanding your limitations,
3: Uh, there's a lot of in in L.A. You you meet a lot of actors, and you realize that actors fall into a couple different types, and there are people that want to act, and there are people that want to be famous, and um, there's no there's no um, meritocracy for people that want to be famous. People come here and they work a little bit hard and they get a lot of fame. And then there are people that work their butts off and get nowhere. But with acting, you see people that really um, know their craft and really study and they are successful. Like the people that I know that are really hardworking actors are successful and they aren't necessarily famous, but they get to do the thing that they love. And people hire them to do the thing that they love um, time and time again, because they, they, they love the, And I think that that's kind of a similar thing. It's like Jason has the opportunity to do this thing that he loves and he doesn't he has to focus on on what he loves in life um, rather than set this, you know, set these other standards up for himself.
0: Are you able to distinguish who which actors are the ones that really want to act and which are the ones that just want to be famous?
3: In my life.
0: Yeah, when you meet like them, yeah, not your friends, but when you when you meet people, can you? Oh, you're one of those. You, you just want to be on the cover of uh, right. People magazine.
3: I don't. I mean, I don't look. I don't look down on people that want that. It's no, no, certainly like a, a, an enticing thing. It's usually pretty clear. There's also like a lot of people that spend a lot of their time working, and it's not even to get famous. It's like they feel like their their purpose is to is to promote themselves, and. Um, yeah, you can, you can sort of tell it's all legit. It's all, it's all a thing. I, I, I'm always intrigued by talking to like the people that act that really want to learn how to react on camera and make choices. That to me is always a really interesting conversation, but there are definitely a lot of actors who will, they'll, they'll, you'll see people talk to each other and they'll start talking about representation. They'll start talking about, um, um, you know, how they send out newsletters every, every three weeks. And, um, I, that That's a totally legitimate thing, and I just i I don't have as much to offer in that conversation
0: well, my favorite I'm a writer, so my for me, my favorite part of the film is when he's he's writing on the bathroom floor um oh yeah, right, yeah. because that because it's what you do mm-hmm. you'll you'll write anywhere under any circumstance and um and I, and I love that, and I love the idea that your your devotion to your craft. Um and I, and I think for him I think he gets distracted by this other thing he thinks he's supposed to do. Um and he gets away from his craft but that moment is such an honest and and pure moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Um did you was there a discovery process for you when you were directing? Did you did you realize something that maybe you hadn't realized before moments of discovery when you were making choices on set um that just sort of came to you in in that in that instance that you were in?
3: Through the whole film?
0: Yeah. I mean, were, were there moments where you went, oh, maybe I'll just try this? I hadn't thought about that.
3: Yes, constantly. I mean, that's that's what one of the things that really makes it fun. Um,
2: <clears throat>
3: it happens at every moment. I, when I was shot listing, I got this idea... I mean, you're always trying to like, we work in reactions and that's always editorially the most important thing, but there's the dinner scene when Gerard comes to dinner. And one of my favorite moments in the film is this moment where, um, Brent shoots Rick, uh, shoots Rick, this really chastising look behind everybody's back. Um, and that came up in shot listing. And then we cast them, they're best friends in real life. And, um, uh, it's just like it was a. It was just an afterthought of a shot list thing, but it, it ultimately was like one of my favorite parts of the scene. Um, so yeah, there's tons and tons of moments of discovery. Rick uh, Shapiro plays Gerard, just you know, can improv, unend like say crazy shit for 45 minutes straight. Um, so that was always fun. We got some really good stuff out of that. Um, but yeah, it was a. Uh, it's constant discovery
0: his mother jason's mother says something to him which is real and she says mother of the year when she says it and she's right but she says that you know in life you you have to fail at things that's part of the process and and that's again one of my favorite moments of the film where failure is as important as success mm-hmm. yeah for,
3: for anyone <laughs> who works in film that's for sure
0: it's a hard thing to explain maybe to a 10-year-old, which is, which is maybe why they hadn't had that conversation prior to them. But, you know, as, as adults, you and I understand that you learn a lot from failed relationships, failed endeavors, failed creative um, detours or, or turns that you take. But that's a difficult thing to explain, obviously, to a child. But there's some real wisdom behind that.
3: Yeah. It's something that I try to remind myself of a lot. Um, it's uh, it's definitely a, a thing to remember.
0: What do you think it is that we learn from our failures? That what what do you think ultimately we're being taught?
3: I think it's just what you do differently the next time. I think that's I think that's uh, how I apply it. Um, in Jason's case, I, I mean, there's a moment where there's a moment Ramona tells him, you know, for a guy. Uh, you sure are good with people for a guy who wants to live in the woods for a year. And um, the thing that that, that Jason really um, misses uh, about himself is how much he likes being around people and how much he likes making people laugh and um, and doing things like that. So so in the end, he gets his his outdoors fixed, but he he also gets an opportunity to be around people. I don't think that's really important to him.
0: Yeah, because I was going to say, you know, he he picks up a really beautiful girl uh, while doing laundry, <laughs> and, it was, and it was effortless. Yeah. It's totally easy for him, but he can't start a fire. And it's sort of like, dude, go with where you're strongest. Exactly. <laughs> um, so tell me about you. What is what's next for you? Uh,
3: I've got a couple ideas brewing. I got a. I have a, a, a radio. Uh, radio play style podcast narrative that I'm working on, um, which we're hoping to record in the next um, month or so. And I, I'm also um, writing a feature film um, based on this punk rock hero, based on the music of a, a punk rock hero of mine, um, and it's it loosely inspired by his his music. So that's that's what's going on right now, and um, you know, always got new
0: ideas. Yeah. Can you, uh, can you tell me who the punk rock hero is?
3: He's a guy named, uh, Adam and his package. I don't know. Um, he a Philadelphia yeah. guy. Um, real funny, real catchy songs, really, um, pointed. Um, and he's a really lovely guy as well.
0: Yeah. I remember him. He put a co- bunch of records out on, uh, was it hopeless back in like the early two thousands? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, or City. I remember that guy. He is he still around?
3: Uh he just had a set of moment. He um he played on uh Chris Gethardt's show. Um and uh but he's a he's a full time teacher at the at the high school I went to, so I was able to connect with him through that. He's really nice. He was did not disappoint in niceness when I met with him. Um just a positive um Gentle
0: guy. So you're writing something about him in terms of like a script, kind of based on loosely based on him, or or an actual biopic on him.
3: Definitely not a biopic. It's it's in a spot that I'm having a really hard time pitching it, so I'm, I'm gonna shy away from some questions about it. But it's um, it's inspired by his music.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep it vague. But dude, that guy rules. I love that guy.
3: I know he's so good.
0: He's so good Um, You know, David, I gotta tell you, man You have a real gift I loved this movie You are a great director And I I love what you're doing You have a very deft eye And one thing I loved about this film Was that, you know, the script is one thing But the director's choices are another And the choices you made showed the humanity um, And the fragility and the grace Behind all these characters I thought you did a beautiful job
3: Thank you so much That's a really day-making thing to say
0: David Haskell, nice guy, right? Uh, If you get a chance, do check out The Outdoorsman. It's worth your time. It's charming. It's funny. You'll love it. Uh, And you'll also love the Andy Wickett album with World Service, Creatures of Love. Check that out. You know what I would love? I would love it if you went to iTunes and you subscribed to Stereo Embers, the podcast. And I'd also love it if you subscribed to Bombshell Radio. I mean, you're there. Two things at once. I know it's asking a lot, so I'll ask a third thing. If you could rate the program, throw us a couple of stars. Not the martial arts stars, the ones that can uh, slice your throat. Not those, but the uh, the kind and gentle stars, the ones where a program gets rated and the host of the program goes, aw, that guy. Uh, if you want to email me, please do it. Editor at com or on Twitter at Ember's editor. Drop me a line, and I'll drop you one back, because I'm that guy. I'm the guy who writes back. Uh, Okay, I'll see you next week here on the program. Let's finish things off with a song. This is from The Outdoorsman, a band called Harlem. This is a really cool tune. I can't remember where and when it appears in the movie. I only know that it does. Okay? All right, enjoy it. This is Harlem. I will see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast
2: boo mm-hmm.